You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing fantastic. Although I am still uh, still a little bit reeling from our power hour. We're going to talk about that yeah. in, due, in due course today on this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. Wanted to check back with you, though. How was your holiday? Last time we recorded this was pre-Thanksgiving. That's right. Here we are now staring down the barrel of Christmas. Well, I don't know if I'd say that on November 26th. Locked but- and loaded. One, one bullet in the chamber. Every day we're spinning that thing, pressing it to our head, pulling the trigger. You know, driving my youngest daughter to preschool this morning, we passed by a house that, say, it's become known to us for their love of seasonal decorations. And this year... Is it the one with the giant Grinch? It's the one with the giant Grinch. Because I saw that when I was driving up to your house to watch Chuck Tito 3. There's a giant goddamn Grinch in the front yard of that place. It's like 30 feet tall. It's fucking huge. Yeah. It is enormous. And those people, they're known for going all out with all their Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas decorations. Uh, And my daughter was kind of outraged that somebody would be putting up Christmas decoration like that this far out. And I was like, kid, you're not wrong, but this is just the way of the world now. This is just what happens. What'd you end up making for Thanksgiving dinner? Is this, are you asking me this just so you can talk about the pie you made? Yep. Go ahead and talk about your pie. My pie fucking owned. It was awesome. It's the first time I've ever made a pie. Made a pecan pie. Was kind of nervous about it. Didn't know how it was going to, how it was going to go down. Uh, turned out terrific. Everyone loved it. Is it possible that you've discovered that you're a natural pie maker? Yes. In fact, I was going to announce on this show, it's the last episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast next week. Same time, same place. It's going to be a podcast about bacon pies. You got a name for that yet? Co-Main Event Piecast. Well, I want to hate it more than I do. You teed me up for that I'll one. I'll say that. Uh, I always knew this this whole experiment would end like this. I knew it would end with you abandoning this project to go off and start a podcast about baked goods. Ben, one week left to buy cowboy astronaut cigarettes. What? T-shirts. They're flying off the rack. Seven days. Uh, we were right up around 200 when I looked earlier. Yeah, we were like at 197, I believe. So I feel like we could all be pretty confident that we had done something great if uh, we got up to 200 and beyond. Yeah. Don't you? 200 is just a nice mark to we hit. We could all be proud of that. We could. Plus, I think we get a financial boost at 200. It's possible. Yeah. We got to shout out our guys, Johnny Ashcroft and Landon Armstrong, who, who of course, designed the Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt. Two terrific designers out of Portland, Oregon. If you have any design needs, we suggest that you check them out. You can find Johnny Ashcroft over at his website, electricapostle.co, and Landon Armstrong, who's a hell of an illustrator, at landonlarmstrong.com. Check them out. Yeah. Good work. Co-Main Event Podcast Book Club is this Friday, November 30th. We will be discussing the Sisters Brothers. Responses are starting to roll in. I heard that we did get 
Andrew Millington's mom's book report. We did, yeah. That's exciting to me. I know. it's uh, That's very exciting news. We're all excited about that. We're going to be talking about the Sisters Brothers, as everyone knows. Uh, ben and I went and saw the movie, but we do, even more so now, after seeing the movie, we insist that people read the book. Yes. Because <laughs> the movie just, it's not going to cut it, especially not vis-a-vis our discussion. No. I have some I have some things to say. So we're going to record that on Friday. If you want to take part, read the book, The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt. Probably should have got on that already. Write up uh, your any thoughts, any questions that you have about the book. Email it to us just the same way you would email the podcast. We're going to be recording that this Friday, November 30th. So jump on board. How are things going over at the Patreon? I'm glad you asked, Chad. Uh, you know how many patrons we're sitting at right now? Uh, it was 747 last time I looked, I think. No, it was like 840 something. 847, sure. 848 right okay. now. Creep, so that's one more. Creeping right up to 850. Creeping on a come up. And then who knows after that? Who knows? But since we are still short of 900, you know what time it is? I shudder to think. Time for a personal mm-hmm. quote from Channing Tatum. Yeah, I know. Uh, this one. This one, it, it notes that it is from 2009, which is going to be important to understand the context of the quote. Uh, this is Channing Tatum on the subject of his career. I got crazy lucky. Like sometimes I think I won the lottery or something. At times it feels like the bottom's going to fall out just because I don't really know how I got here. But I just keep moving forward and it just keeps getting better and better. I think there are a lot of people in 2009 who are thinking, how did Channing Tatum get here? Okay. Uh, I've... I guess I don't re- totally understand the context. What's special about 2009? Is that, was that the breakthrough year? Was that Channing Tatum's breakout year? Well, in recent years, he's had some like serious roles and stuff where you can kind of look at it and be like, all right, Channing Tatum seems like he can actually act. Like Foxcatcher. Like that yes. was one of the ones that, that showed people that. Uh, I think this was kind of prior to that. And maybe then that was back in the days when people were just like, so is this just a... A handsome guy playing the typical handsome guy parts. Also a hell of a dancer. Hell of a dancer. Have you seen him in that, uh, what is it, Coen Brothers movie? Uh, Yes. Hail Uh, Caesar? Hail Caesar, yes. Where he plays Burt Gerdy, secret communist Burt Gerdy. And that dance sequence is just absolutely phenomenal. Ben, tell the kids how they can get down with the Patreon if they want to do it. Well, Chad, you go to patreon.com slash co-main-event. That's where you can sign up to be an acquaintance of the podcast, a friend of the podcast, or one of our guys or girls. Uh, with those different pay tiers come different rewards. If you can get down with us for five bucks a month, you get access to, of course, the normal weekly podcast that's free to all, but also the extra special power hour each week. Plus, we will send you in the mail a CME sticker and a CME koozie. You also get access to fun streaming events, like when we did the streaming of the Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz trilogy fight. That Fun. Emphasis on fun. That really seared itself into all of our brains. Uh, plus, it really it works out to like 25 cents an episode. It's kind of a screaming deal. This podcast is worth at least a quarter of a dollar. Yeah. Patreon.com slash co-main event. We got music again this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element, at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you guys know, that's the word the with an A. The. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, 
If you listen to Saturday night's Patreon Power Hour live stream, you heard Ben, Sir Nigel, and I slowly sink into a depression as we watched Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz fight. If you didn't listen, Ben and I will essentially do a dramatic reenactment on this show today. And in round number two, is there room in the crowded MMA landscape for Golden Boy Promotions? Does it even want to be there? And in round number three, just with the doctor ordered for Francis Ngannou, who spent his 2018 going from so hot to so not to so hot again. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Patrick Ryan over on Patreon. Thanks for the support, Patrick Ryan. Yeah. He writes, were you like me? intrigued by Israel Adesanya's talk of his quote-unquote big plan and how he got Dana White on board. With Bobby Nux and Gastelum already engaged, did your imaginations run wild like mine, projecting what great middleweight foe Izzy had in mind to further his career after his impressive destruction of Derek Brunson, guys like Luke Rockhold or Yoel Romero? Did you enjoy a wild vision, as I did, of a weight class jumping call out to face John Jones, were you like me, just disappointed as hell in the news that, of course, the plan was Anderson Silva all along, and apparently Dana loves it. Shame on me for entertaining the notion that we'd like to see some sport in this sports entertainment. Guess we'll just watch the old, the old get eaten by the young ad nauseum. Yeah, well, that's what we've been doing in combat sports basically forever. It's a formula that works, apparently. Yes, We're not going to change now. It doesn't uh, soften the blow much, though. No, it doesn't. And especially because I, I did feel the same way as Patrick Ryan here, that a- after that last performance against Eric Brunson, it's like, all right, he is a for real guy in the middleweight division now. And now it's time to put him up against somebody right up there at the top. You know, you could make a case of keeping him on standby, for stepping into the title picture if you need him. He, like, he's he's kind of at that point after beating Derek Brunson. He's definitely at the point where you're thinking, okay, he wins one more, and then it's title shot time. And so it seems like you're waiting to see which young fellow competitive contender is he going to face, and instead we're going to do a thing where we found an old guy whose name has outlived his skill, kind of, and we're going to put you up against him so that you can just absolutely wreck him to yeah. kind of put you over. And yet again, an example of the truth that it doesn't matter if you are a legend or what you have done for this company or this sport. Eventually, no matter who you are, you will reach the stage where they are just going to sacrifice you at the altar of some young guy without, you know, just on the offhand chance that that guy turns into something. Yeah. Like it's definitely not like, an automatic home run that Israel Adesanya turns into the next Anderson Silva, for example. It's not even like a a, a given that he turns into anything at all. And yet, uh, we're going to go ahead here and serve up Anderson Silva for a beatdown at the hands of Israel Adesanya, just in case. Just in case we want to do something with him in the future. Well, and you can see what they're thinking. Style-wise, it's a good matchup for Israel Adesanya. It's somebody who... Probably not going to take him down. Probably not even going to try to take him down. That's somebody who will stand there and try to trade striking wizardry with him. And yet, as we've seen with Anderson Silva, while he's still crafty, he just doesn't have the same speed and the same power and reflexes that he used to have. 
And he relied on those things an awful lot. Yeah. And as I'm sure we'll talk about with the Chuck Liddell kind of stuff, that style just doesn't age that well. I mean, he's he's aged kind of surprisingly well to this point. But it is kind of sad to see somebody who was once, you know, fighting like he was somebody who had come from the, the very near future and knew everything everybody else was going to do and had an answer for it. And now he's just kind of another guy. Yeah. Fought like he came down from a higher league. Yes. As Dan Carlin would say. Yes. On Hardcore History. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of answering this question that this is certainly not new. And in fact, the young eating the old is perhaps what we expect from combat sports. Do you think that it's any more unseemly within the structure of the UFC just because if you were like an old-timey boxer or a boxer of almost any generation, getting beat up by a young up-and-comer was the natural product of aging, I guess, and like because of your pride as a fighter, maybe you stuck around a little bit too long. But I don't know if it ever seemed as contrived as it does within the bounds of the UFC. I mean, I'm certain that there were cases in the past where a promoter had a young up and coming fighter where they were like, ah, oh, we can get a little rub off this old guy. Let's get him in here. Get him three rounds of good work. Uh, they don't have to do this in the UFC. It doesn't have to go down like this. You're saying that is it, does it seem more unseemly because you get the sense of somebody is pulling the strings to make this depressing outcome happen? Yeah, because there is a strong centralized power structure in the UFC. It's not like the loose alignment of fighters that you might get in a boxing promotion, for example. Like this is a conscious choice. This isn't just like a a, a, a like a, a weird outcome of matchmaking or like, you know, these two guys are both going to be in Reno on the same (laughs) night and they both need a fight. So they're both going to fight each other. This is like orchestrated an orchestrated beating of an old legend in, in service of like a young guy. Right. But it's also effective. Like it, it serves the purpose that it's meant to. And it does it pretty well because I think that there are a lot of people out there who, they're not the shit-eating wild men demographic of fan. They kind of pay attention to it. They kind of know some of the people. And in order to really bring their attention to some new guy, you say, hey, Anderson Silva is going to fight this this undefeated kickboxer guy. And that kind of gets their attention. I think it, that does still work. And so then they go, okay, like let me see what that fight's all about. And then if he goes out there and he completely shows out the way everybody expects him to, and he beats up Anderson Silva, then suddenly these people are going, whoa, okay, so this is somebody I, I should pay attention to. Right. Well, you're, like doing it, the, you're doing the thing right now of like saying that it's okay because it's going to work. I'm not saying it's okay it's, it's going to work. I'm saying it's not going to stop because it works. Like that's – it it has been around for a long time for a reason, like because it is a reliable way most of the time to get to where you're trying to go as a promoter. And I mean, presumably Anderson Silva can turn down this fight. You know, you come to Anderson, it's not like he is in a situation where the UFC can really push him around and tell him right. he's got to take whatever they offer him. You know, he he's still in there. He's still doing it. They come to him with Israel Adesanya. He could say, you know what? No, I think I'm busy that weekend. But he didn't. The kid's got a soccer tournament. (laughs) Next question from Jay Gargiulio, which also came through over on Patreon. He writes, do you think the UFC is burning the bridge 
from casual fandom to shit-eating wild man fandom. Conventional wisdom would say that you attract casual fans to your free content and develop those into customers willing to pay you for the premium stuff. But increasingly, the UFC seems like it is trying to attract casual fans to the pay-per-views by stacking them with title fights, but also with gimmicks like interim belts that only make sense if you're not paying attention. This leaves the average fight night card a six or seven hour wretched hellscape of terrible commercials and bouts of dubious import. That's a good, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Bouts of dubious import. Bouts of dubious import is kind of like the company motto at this point. Navigable only by DVR, not exactly accessible to the uninitiated. This might make sense as a short term money grab and not as a sustainable model. Well, the ESPN deal changed this. We excrement devourers aren't going anywhere, but can the UFC grow uh, with this current strategy? You know, this is a good point, I think, because clearly like back in the in the golden days of the UFC, especially on Spike TV, I think this is, is was exactly the model, right? Hook people in with the ultimate fighter and the fight nights. Maybe you'll tune in and you'll take a shine to a Forrest Griffin or a Chris Lieben, for example. Right. You'll and see then, him graduate to a pay-per-view. Yeah, and then kind of follow them to pay-per-view. Eventually, uh, maybe they get a title shot and you're damn sure going to be plunking down your hard-earned cash to watch that happen. Now it it seems like not only as we have talked about a lot on the show that it's just much, much more difficult to track the machinations of the sport because there's so much more content out there. But like you do tune in for these fight night events and they are largely anonymous. You're not going to or it's probably pretty unusual that you are going to tune in for a fight night event and latch on to a a single personality and like follow that person. Yeah, I mean. It's just tougher to pick anybody out from the herd these days. And it's true also that it makes it harder because, like, I was having a conversation with uh, someone on one of my hockey teams and his wife. And, you know, he's more of a fan. She's talking about how, like, you know, he told her about, okay, there's a somebody you like is fighting. So she stayed up to watch it. But then she was just kind of like, yeah, I wanted to watch the main event. But it just, you know, they make you sit through so much. Yeah. Just to get to the main event. And it's like, yeah, that is exactly how it feels a lot of the time. Like they're just hiding their best stuff or that it's not – it doesn't feel exactly free by the time you get to it. Because you have earned it by the number of commercials you've sat through, number of just – the amount of just filler content you have to sit through. And by that point, it feels like a labor. And so, yeah, it does make it difficult, I think, to turn people who are just kind of casually interested into – every weekend kind of fans or into give you my money kind of fans. Yeah. Now here's the interesting question about how the ESPN deal may or may not change the programming approach that the UFC has taken, because I could honestly see it going a couple of different ways. Like let's take the generous approach and think that, you know, the UFC is going to, it's moving up. I think undoubtedly, I don't think that there's any way that you can make an argument against the fact that moving off Fox sports one and on to even ESPN2, or, you know, certainly ESPN proper, is like a step up. You're going to be on a cable package that is far more readily available to a lot more people. It's just going to feel bigger. It's going to provide some additional exposure. Do we see the return of like a Spike TV-style fight night event where we're going to be actually trying to cultivate stars because now... We have like the added pressure of being on ESPN or is it going to stay the same or regress even further into like 
these ESPN plus events that obviously are going to be take the place of fight pass. We think, uh, are going to become the rule and it's just going to be even more UFC Beijing's or whatever. Yeah. That's the thing I'll be really interested to see because it seems like the UFC has really ensconced itself in this model that it doesn't seem like the UFC is considering a whole lot of changes to it. They seem to really like the way this works. So, I mean, maybe ESPN can come in and be like, Hey, we know a thing or two about broadcasting sports on TV. Let us tell you what you should do. Uh, but it seems like for, a company like ESPN trying to launch this new streaming service, one of the appeals of the UFC was the just sheer amount of content that they produce. Right. Sheer amount of live sports content. And I don't know. I'll be interested to see what the distinction is between those ESPN Plus events, which, God, the, we got to come up with a better naming convention because already looking at them on the schedule where it's UFC Fight Night on ESPN Plus 1. I mean, already I'm... I'm tearing my hair out at that. So it'll be interesting to see what the difference is between those and between ESPN proper and what kind of difference it makes to get just a, a regular push on things like SportsCenter. Okay, here is a related question that plays into the anecdote that you just uh, laid on us. This one from soccer legend Diego Maradona. Oh, good to hear from him. He was looking good during this most recent World Cup. Yeah, looking kept, fired up. When they kept cutting that. to Diego Maradona in the stands. He always was feeling some kind of way. He looked like he'd been being Diego Maradona <laughs> for, a, for a while now. He writes, Currently drinking through the early morning prelims with my girlfriend, who is watching MMA for the first time, in order to understand my shit-eating wild man tendencies. She is very uninterested at the moment, and I immediately regret bringing her into the sport during a 4 a.m. drunken prelim fight between two names that I assume uh, are only mouth noises. <laughs> the first MMA fight I watched was Gonzaga versus Krokop, and it felt significant. However, those fights are rare these days. What upcoming fight can we watch together that will turn her into Mrs. Shit-Eating Wild Woman? Please discourse. Now, I okay. don't necessarily, I do have a fight that I think is going to fit the bill here. But I don't know if we necessarily need to constrict our discourse only to that. I'll just ask you, what do you think would be the best way to hook in somebody, a new fan, today, 2018? Okay. How would you do it? Here's, here's what I'd suggest. I'm going to tailor it to this specific situation where you've got a, a girlfriend who has not previously shown any interest in MMA. You know who she might be able to get interested in? Your boy Brian Ortega, okay. who's going to fight for the featherweight title against Max Holloway. He just kind of took it, took the words right out of my mouth because the fight I was going to... He's a pretty man. The fight I was going to push was Ortega versus Holloway. Yeah, going to be an action fight, going to be a lot of just quality martial arts action going on. Brian Ortega's not hard on the eyes. Uh, I think also, if you get that one on the undercard, you got uh, Valentina Shevchenko and uh, Yoanny and Jacek. Yeah, for the women's uh, flyweight title. So that that's not a, a bad little appetizer for that one either. Right. I, I mean, I think maybe maybe that's your best bet. However, it is also on pay-per-view, so there's an investment there. Might be worth it, though. I like. I don't know if you're going to get... This is UFC 231, right? Next week? Uh, yes. Next weekend? Uh, I don't think you're going to get a better chance if you want to rope in a new fan at least in the immediate than UFC 231 because like you said uh you're gonna have at least a couple of what we think are gonna be really good fights I think uh Holloway versus Ortega is gonna be off the chain in the cage they're both likable dudes you know Max Holloway is showing up in a mirror tie 
which I don't know Diego Maradona's girlfriend, but like, I like that. Yeah. I'm into watching uh, Max Holloway walk in in whatever crazy outfit he's going to wear. Brian Ortega, there's probably going to be some soft focus uh, video vignettes about his, his troubled childhood. You think it'll be surfing? And about how now he uses his powers for good. Uh, and then the fight is just going to be crazy. And then also, like you said, Shevchenko versus Yajajic, uh, I think that's a good one. Well, and plus, you get yourself a pay-per-view card, then, you know, you tell, don't bother with the prelims. Like, this was a mistake, a 4 a.m. drunken yeah, prelim. That, that was not the way to, to introduce somebody to this sport. Uh, don't bother with the fight pass prelims or the FS1 prelims. Tell her to come over when the pay-per-view starts. And then, you know, you just kind of breeze through the stuff. And not be bothered with a whole bunch of commercials and a whole bunch of throwing it back to the desk and all that stuff. You know, if you want to get somebody involved in the or interested in this sport, start with the best it has to offer. Yeah, I was going to say in a general sense, like if you're going to try to hook in a new fan, I would almost say less is more. Like you may not even want to tell them about fight nights. <laughs> yes, until they're after, not ready for that. Right, until after they've watched some pay-per-view events until they're like, Oh my God, I love this. I can't believe that. Like it's only on once a month or whatever. And then you can be like, well, I got news for you. Welcome news. What are you doing every Saturday night for the rest of your life? <laughs> from four o'clock in the afternoon until midnight. Last question this week comes to us from Doug James. He writes, guys, what about Chris Lieben out here working as a ref and judge? Is this the ideal role for the crippler so we don't have to see him bare knuckle fight Phil Baroni anymore? Discourse. So yeah, Phil, uh, Chris Lieben working as a, an official, a ref during the Golden Boy MMA promotion on Saturday night. Maybe the most uh, feel good story I saw all night. Yeah, well, you know, Frank Trigg has been doing it for a while now, so that seems to be something that you can do, a transition you can make. I think he, I think Chris Lieberman worked maybe as a ref for some of the undercard bouts, maybe amateur bouts that were earlier in the evening, but then you saw him in the role, you know, checking people out as they're getting into the cage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, A, I agree that whatever keeps him out of trying to find his future as a bare knuckle boxer is probably healthier for Chris Lieben. And yeah, it doesn't, it's not a bad thing to have as officials guys who have been involved at that level in the sport. I would way rather know that Chris Lieben is uh, chipping out a living given personal MMA lessons, private MMA lessons, and, you know, making a couple hundred extra dollars here and there working as a ref or a judge than to know that he's on a steamboat somewhere going up river to the Island where the cops won't find you. Yeah. So he can bare knuckle box Phil Baroni. Yeah. It's just a, a healthier lifestyle. I would think you'll, you'll sleep easier knowing that that's what Chris Lieben is up to. I would. And then uh, Frank Trigg wearing the, the ref body cam on golden boy. Right. It was the glasses that, yeah. yeah. Google glass or yeah. whatever. So he can see what he's seeing. And frankly, I like seeing those guys out there. Like, don't you? Yeah. You know, when I was watching LFA a couple weeks ago, Frank Trigg was reffing. When Frank Trigg walks, I'm like, oh, it's, it's Frank Trigg. Yeah, it's like seeing a friend in the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. He's got his Trigonomics brand ref shirt that he's wearing. What, really? No, not really. <laughs> Pretty sure Trigonomics ain't cranking out apparel these days. You think maybe Trigonomics went the way of Iceman.tv? <laughs> it was, it was a, uh, a casualty of the crash. Yeah. Of the financial crash. <laughs> Got a lot of good ones. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com. 
click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, I'm going to flip the script here. Oh, no. Because we normally do Are You Fucking Kidding Me at the end of round number one. That is true. But I'm going to do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me at the beginning of round one as a way to introduce our discussion about the third meeting between Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz, which went down over the weekend at the first ever Golden Boy MMA uh, promotion and ended uh, with a first round knockout victory by Tito Ortiz over his old rival Chuck Liddell. And my are you fucking kidding me is, do you know, Ben, when I became certain that Chuck Liddell was going to lose this fight against Tito Ortiz? The moment he pumped out a jab? I was sure he was going to lose this fight while he was walking to the fucking cage. Because are you fucking kidding me? Chuck Liddell could barely get there. He was limping. He was limping a little bit. He was tottering around a little bit. You see Chuck Liddell approach the cage and you think, he should not be getting in that cage right now. And yet... They opened the door and let him on in. Are you fucking kidding me? If a dude can't walk to the cage, I'm thinking, this seemed like a good idea at one point. But maybe now, maybe now we should intervene before he gets in there and fights another grown man. This is as good a transition to what I wanted to ask you about as anything I can imagine. Because... Like you said, there must have been some point, like if, like seeing what Chuck Liddell was capable of in the cage when he started throwing punches, and within 30 seconds, you could see, uh-oh. Yes. There's nothing he can really do to he, Tito Ortiz here. He was looking every bit his 48 years Yeah, he out looked there. Like, like a really old spring that just, like, it's not, it's not got the same pop in the coil anymore. Yeah. It's been stretched out too much, and it's just it's never going to be the same. Like a slinky after your kids get to it. Yeah. And you could see him throw some of those punches and just know, you know what? This is going to be bad. And it's just a question of how long it's going to be bad for and exactly how it ends. And you could see Tito Ortiz in some of those exchanges smiling because he realized – this is going to be easier than I thought, man. This is this is going to be a lot more fun than what I was planning on. Like, I'm in no danger whatsoever in here. This is so nice. And if that's the case when he gets in there on fight night, definitely it must have been the case in the gym. Yeah. There must have been sparring rounds or whatever. Or, or somebody with some experience training fighters must have seen that in the gym and thought, well... This is not exactly ideal. This is not the old Iceman. So how did it get all the way to this point? Uh, we talked about that on fight night, right? Because it was not John Hackleman right. who was in the corner of Chuck Liddell. I saw him a little bit on the Ariel Hawani ESPN show today. Uh, not necessarily, not giving the impression that he like drove his truck over and blocked Chuck's car into his driveway to stop him from doing it. Which might have been a sweet move. But at the same time, uh, Hackleman said Chuck Liddell did much worse than he expected, that he looked much worse than he thought he would. 
Uh, so I don't know, man. Like we, you know, I don't know if it was meaningful at all that he was out there with Antonio McKee and the guys from the body shop. Is that still what they're calling it? Probably. Uh, then he was, you know, then, then being out there with Hackleman or any of the other guys that were sort of his, his inner circle at the pit during the height of his MMA career. I don't know if we can draw any kind of meaning from that. Uh, but you do feel like at some point someone's eyebrows should have been raised by the, you know, what was happening here. It was interesting because I was thinking about this after the event. If you told me in a vacuum, if you were like, hey, Golden Boy MMA is going to do an MMA show, I would have been like, what? That doesn't seem like a great idea. And if you had told me without having seen either of them work out, they're going to do Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz 3 in the main event, I would have said, that seems like it might work. Like, if that's going to be your first event, you could do worse in terms of, like, drawing eyeballs and interest to your pay-per-view. After actually having watched it, it felt really dirty. The whole thing felt really kind of despicable. And I'm, and I guess my question is the same one you just asked, like, when... When did we know and who knew it and, and what it, what did they know and when did they know it? Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree with John Hackleman's assessment that Chuck looked worse than I thought. I did not expect him to go out there and be like the same old guy eight years away, damn near 50 years old. That's definitely going to take its toll. But I at least thought that he would have some of the ability to hurt Tito Ortiz yeah. if Tito fucked around and did the wrong things. It and was shocking how slow he yeah. looked. And just how completely incapable of presenting any sort of threat to Tito Ortiz. I mean, you look at Tito Ortiz's career and you see, you know, TKO finishes, but they're not like this. They're the take you down and elbow you in the face until you kind of stop moving. This is the only standing one punch KO he has in his entire career. And he got it at 43 years old. And it's not necessarily because he turned into such a monster at this point in his life. It's because of who he was facing. Like, that tells you something. Like, the reason we wanted Chuck Liddell to stop fighting back in 2010 was because he was going down way too easy from the punches. And definitely that's not something that gets better with age. And that's what happened here. And, I mean, I guess it's better than doing the thing where you match him up against somebody way younger who is just going to eat him alive and try to get some shine off of his name. It's better than that. It's still, you know, it's kind of the Bellator seniors tour model. And yet you're right. I still didn't feel great about it by the time. Didn't feel great about my participation in it by the time it was all over. Well, and the prevailing wisdom on the way into this fight was at least he's fighting Tito Ortiz. Right. A guy who, who is probably not going to hurt him that badly, no matter what happens. And then you see him get knocked unconscious on the feet by a flurry of punches. One really like significant punch that hit him right in the middle of the face. And the way that he collapsed against the cage was scary. Yeah. Like you just see it and he looks every bit a 50 year old man who just got punched in the face. Yeah. Uh, so that was not great. No, that was not great. Um, when you said though that like telling people, Hey, Tito Ortiz versus Chuck Liddell is their first event that that might work. Did it work? Like, we watched it. It looked like people were paying attention to it, whether we should have or not. I mean, we'll talk more in the next round about what whether that leads to a future going forward. But for this one event, do you think that it was successful in what it set out to do? It got our attention. 
Yeah, it did get our attention. And like we talked about a week or two ago, it was on the Saturday night after Thanksgiving. So a lot of people were hanging around with nothing to do, maybe bored, trying to get away from their families. Maybe they drove over to their buddy's house and watched Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz 3. Uh, I don't know. It did seem like the the eyes of the MMA bubble were on this event, basically because there was almost nothing else going on because the UFC in China went down earlier in the day. But it didn't feel as though there were a lot of positive reviews up no. to and even before the main event. Like we were, it seemed like the, the, at least MMA social media was watching this in the gleeful way that we so often do, which is kind of like, oh my God, this is like kind of a train wreck. Right. I mean, that's what Bellator has counted on at times in the past with some of its Ted Pole events. Like you, you don't book Kimbo Slice versus Dada 5000 because you're really hoping for high level martial arts. You book it because you're hoping that it'll just get people's attention, even if they're going, oh, well, this is going to be such a mess. I got to see this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll talk about it in round two, about whether or not Golden Boy comes back for a second show, whether or not we would be interested to watch that, some of the ins and outs of the actual streaming and the, you know, the production values of the, of the event itself. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, d- I didn't watch the whole thing like you did. I, I came midway through the, uh, uh, the, the, the lead up to the co-main event featuring, uh, who was it? Tom Lawler. No, no. The one before that. Oh, oh, Efrenescu Darrow and Gleason T-Bell. There you go. See, that's how big of an impression it made on me. Yeah. Uh, So I watched all of three fights of it. I kind of felt like of what I saw, even though we were kind of, you know, talking about how he was short of stature, maybe too small to be a light heavyweight. I feel like the Olympic wrestler Deron Wynn was kind of like the guy that I saw. I was like, oh, yeah, I would watch him fight again. Like, he seemed like an interesting dude. Uh, So I don't know how many of those storylines ultimately came out of this. Yeah. Uh. I guess the last thing I want to talk about is obviously for Tito Ortiz, this probably felt like a good moment. Like you get some revenge on Chuck Liddell, even if you had to wait until he was the oldest, frailest member of the herd and you could finally pick him off. Uh, And Danny Downs and I talked a little bit about it and he was saying that he felt like some of people's negative reaction to it was them feeling like this was Tito getting away with something that – like there's people either because they don't like Tito Ortiz or they do like Chuck Liddell who felt like Tito does not really deserve a win over Chuck Liddell. He had to wait until Chuck Liddell was aged and decrepit in order to get that win that he kind of kind of stole it from him in yeah. that way yeah. and managed to get a win over Chuck Liddell on his record. And that there are people who felt like Tito Ortiz just shouldn't be allowed to beat Chuck Liddell. Do you think, I mean, I feel like, that has to be some part of it. The feeling that Tito Ortiz managed to get a win that doesn't necessarily mean what Chuck Liddell's previous wins over him mean. Yeah. I mean, I joked a lot about how if Tito Ortiz got this win, we would kick off the best of five series. And now having actually seen them fight, I would run screaming from a, a fourth fight between these two guys. And I think that there probably is that attitude that you talked about that Tito Ortiz maybe snuck in at the last moment and got a win over over Chuck Liddell. The interesting thing about this fight, though, like one of the interesting things about the aftermath, and I feel like it's pretty easy to put yourself in the shoes of both of these fighters, especially if you are of a certain age, which I am. I'm 40 years old. Uh, so I kind of I, I kind of know what it feels like, obviously not to the extent that these guys do. Uh, to sort of like get old and 
uh, feel in your mind like you can still do the stuff you used to do and then your body can't can't really do it. But in the aftermath of this fight, neither of these guys acted like that was a thing at all. Tito Ortiz acted like, I got this win because I'm the greatest version of Tito Ortiz that has ever been. Right. I is, came out I here. Mean, of course he's going to do that. That's right. I came out and put a beat down on Chuck Liddell, kind of acted like I won the Super Bowl, jumped up on the cage, <laughs> flexed my muscles. I'm like, who's next for Tito Ortiz? Basically kind of a thing. And Chuck Liddell did the same thing. And he was sort of like, oh, I, I prepared really hard. I got in great shape. I came out here. Got I made caught. a mistake and I got caught. And everybody watching yeah. both of those guys knows that neither of those things are true. <laughs> yes. And I feel like it's really easy for me to feel bad for Chuck Liddell because of this reason. But I feel like just, you know, watching them, it, it's a very human thing to be like, okay, this, these are two athletes that just flatly refuse to admit that they are diminished. And for Chuck Liddell, the consequences obviously were a bit more heightened than they were for Tito Ortiz. But it's just interesting to me to see that and be like, neither of those, neither of these dudes are having it. Neither of these dudes are engaging in the real conversation of what's happening here. Yeah. Well, and they're not really equipped to because in order to end up in that situation to begin with, both like being at the end of a great mixed martial arts career and still thinking it's a good idea to continue on with it at that age, you have to have the, the, some personality stuff that allows you to ignore all the reasons why it might right. be a bad idea. So I guess the follow-up question is, do you think Tito Ortiz has any concept that he got away with one? Do you think Tito Ortiz, deep in his heart of hearts, knows well, that wasn't really Chuck Liddell out no, there. No, I don't think he's capable of being that honest with himself. I think he is 100% firm in his belief that it's because he's the greatest Tito Ortiz he has ever been. So when the Tito Ortiz uh, sequel memoir comes out, this will be played as the like the pivotal meeting between these two athletes. Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. It will be the thing like, well... Here's when we really settled the score. It was the one of the three fights that I won. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ben, roll out your are you fucking kidding me? I did mine to begin the round, so uh, I'm tapped out. But what uh, do you got? Um, did you see on Tito Ortiz's Instagram him promoting these T-shirts that he put out about this fight? Is this the one you showed me that looks like the presidential seal or is it a different that, one? That part is on there. Uh, I'll show you. I'll turn my computer here so you can see it. Okay. See, there's the presidential seal there. For one thing, the presidential seal thing, uh, it's got the eagle holding the American flag and the Mexican flag, which in, in has been Tito Ortiz's thing for a long time, which uh, kind of difficult to square with being a Trump guy, but maybe not the most nuanced political views from Tito Ortiz. Uh, notice it appears at first like the seal just says punishment athletics, but if you look closer, punishment of all Athletics is oh. what it appears to say. Uh, and the illustration on the back of the shirt is, I'm going to say, shopping mall quality drawing of Tito Ortiz and his flame shorts standing over a grave with the gravestone reading, R.I.P. Chuck, 11-24-18. When you say shopping mall quality, do you mean like street artist caricature? Because that's what it looks like yeah. to me. It looks like you would pay a guy 25 bucks outside the entrance to Central Park and he would draw you and your girlfriend for this shirt. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah, that's this you get this at the county fair. Uh and again, his his whole thing with graves, man. Tito Ortiz loves the idea of putting you in a grave so much that he is going to continue doing that damn celebration even when two athletic commission guys are trying to stop him. And then, you know, they have that nice moment afterwards where he actually did not gloat 
and rub Chuck's face in it too much. But we are still totally going to put out the shirt of you dead in a grave. Yeah. So are you fucking kidding me? Just generalized? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, now we switch to talking a little bit about the powers that be that made this happen, this Liddell-Ortiz 3 fight, because, like you said, Golden Boy jumping into the MMA space at first seemed like maybe a bad idea, if only because does the MMA world even have room for Golden Boy as a promoter at this point? And what niche would you be trying to fill? Like, what's the the thing that's missing that you can provide? And then we see this first event, which... Let's say, had some hiccups in the promotion aspect of it. Oscar De La Hoya's performance at the pre-fight press conference led you to wonder if he even knew what was going on. Didn't seem like he had done a ton of homework. Uh, as I believe one uh, of the meme, MMA meme accounts I follow on Instagram put it, Oscar De La Hoya talking about MMA sounds like when the 40-year-old virgin talks about boobs. <laughs> and then they go, they put on the, the actual fight. You know, up until Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell seemed just like pretty standard MMA fare. Yeah. Is there a future for Golden Boy? Well, the weirdest thing about that, as you mentioned, and I think I want to talk about this first, and then maybe we can talk about the actual pay-per-view itself. But like the weirdest thing about it, and the thing that makes you think twice about whether or not there's going to be a second Golden Boy pay-per-view, was that Golden Boy itself seemed disinterested by this whole affair. And that, of course, was was personified, embodied by Oscar De La Hoya coming to the pre-fight press conference and seeming like they just woke him up with the old folks home and were like, hey, Oscar, we need you to do a press conference. Don't worry about the details. But like, yeah, that was weird, man. It, it like it gave the impression that Golden Boy like wanted to get into the MMA space. And then once it was actually doing an event was like, no, 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 no. This is a bad idea. Like, basically, we said we were going to be here. We already told everyone we were going to yeah. do this, let's so we can't back with. out now, so yeah. let's just get it over with. So I guess my response would be I would be kind of surprised if Golden Boy did a second event, but would probably check it out again for a second time because I'm a weirdo who is involved in a, uh abusive relationship with mixed martial arts. What would they have to do, though, to get you in- involved again? Because it's... Like we said in round one, it's not like you left the best taste in our mouth with Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell. We didn't feel great about supporting it by the time it was all over. And the undercard, I think, showed one of the major problems for anybody trying to jump in right now as an MMA promoter, which is who do you get? Who is even out there that anybody knows, cares about, and yet still has something left in them? Because the UFC has so many people under contract. Bellator's snapping up uh, everybody else. PFL has got a lot of people involved with that tournament kind of thing that, you know, had some kind of name recognition from fighting in other promotions. Uh, it's it's not like you can just pluck somebody out of a gym because if we don't know them, we're not going to pay to see them. And if you're, if you're trying to run pay-per-view events, like you need something that we can't not buy. Like that's what you had with T. Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, something where it was like, man, I don't even want to but I kind of got to. 
I guess my first stipulation would be that Chuck Liddell cannot be involved. Okay. I don't want Chuck Liddell anywhere near another Golden Boy MMA event. But like during the Patreon live stream, when we were talking about how Chuck Liddell envisioned this as the start of a comeback, not just a one-off fight with Tito Ortiz. Right. I was like, Ben, what would a Chuck Liddell comeback even look like? Like, what do you think he's envisioning? You laid out for me a shockingly realistic next few steps for Chuck Liddell. And the thing that you said first uh, was Chuck Liddell against Rashad Evans because uh, the broadcast team here on the Golden Boy pay-per-view was Todd Grisham, Frank Mir, and Rashad Evans, which isn't terrible if that's what you can get together. Like, uh, that wasn't the worst part of the pay-per-view. Like, it, I saw there, were, there weren't a ton of instances where I thought that the the broadcast team was held up to mockery, at least in my kind of like limited viewing of the fights. So like, what if I told you main event of golden boy MMA two was Tito Ortiz versus Rashad Evans. Would you come back for that? I feel like begrudgingly I would, despite the fact that, uh, I really like Rashad Evans. And I think that he would, would run the risk of like having some similar negative options that Chuck Liddell did. Like the thing about Rashad Evans was that he also was kind of getting knocked out a little bit easily during the latter stages of his UFC career. And I just wouldn't want to see that happen to him again. Uh, I mean, I think he had fared a lot better against Tito Ortiz, but also it sounded like Tito Ortiz maybe not interested in continuing to fight. I think he, his post fight comments were mainly like he wants to be a promoter. And he was even saying, Hey, but if Chuck Liddell wants to continue to fight, let's find him a fight. Uh, so already shows you maybe ethics as a promoter won't really be a roadblock for him. Uh, no, I would not pay for Tito Ortiz with Shot Evans. Like that, that's where I think that you, you can't just try to do like some diminished version of the same thing that you did. You got to find something else to do. And that's where I think that Golden Boy is going to have the, the biggest problem is because it's like, where do you fit in right now in the MMA landscape? The, everybody's, Viewing dollars are already stretched pretty thin between like all the subscription services and everything. Uh, there's not a whole lot of free agent talent that's known or still relevant. I don't see what you, like which promoter niche you can right. fill if you're Golden Boy. Yeah. One of the other aspects here that I think is kind of like an offshoot of the perceived, uh, you know, uh, non-committal nature of the Golden Boy MMA move is that like you hear like oh golden boy M- golden boy promotions is going to do an MMA event and i like my first reaction is like oh okay some people that like have some background in promoting you feel like maybe they're going to do it up big like maybe this comes off as a real professional deal right then you see the pay-per-view and it's like they're balling on a budget they are obviously <laughs> pulling this thing off kind of as cheaply as possible and part of the thing is that the UFC because it's been around so long, because it's so dominant in the sport has kind of trained us to think that a high level MMA broadcast should look like a UFC broadcast, right? So you see golden boy and the lighting's just not right. It's weird and dark in there. Like everything look, the cage looks kind of cheap. Like the, the, uh, the logos on the microphones look kind of cheap. Uh, it just doesn't look like they pulled out all the stops to make this like a big event. And that makes me wonder, Hey, again, like, did we get halfway into this thing and we're like, oh shit, like, let's just get this over with and move on with our lives. Or like, did I overvalue like what Golden Boy would bring to the table? Or like, is that just 
was that their vision that this would be like a streaming pay-per-view that they wouldn't spend a ton of money on and might be able to make a, a profit. Well, when you think about it, if you were going to put on an MMA event, uh, a pay-per-view, knowing what you know about the MMA business, it would seem like, like, let's say the co-main event was going to put on its own pay-per-view. Now I'm interested. Yeah. Now you're talking. Uh, one of our first questions to each other would inevitably be, how do we hedge our bets here and not lose a ton of fucking money trying to promote an MMA event the sure. way so many other promoters have done? Like a lot of people have made the mistake, I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to do it up big. I'm going to compete with the UFC right out the gates. And next thing you know, I blew through like $10 million. Yeah. Uh, that would be your main focus, I think, like getting in. You should be like, how do we put on a show, test the waters a little bit, see what we can do, but don't spend ourselves out of business? I, that makes that outcome makes sense from that mode of thinking to me. I guess so. I guess so. But I mean, the, there would be a big difference there being that the co-main event podcast are just a couple of literal yahoos sitting at my <laughs> kitchen table right now. And like a golden boy, at least to my mind, would be like a legitimate combat sports promoter. So I feel like them kind of lowballing it is a weird move that in my mind sort of reflects poorly on their organization. Well, what about uh, one of the early promises from Oscar De La Hoya was him saying that he is sickened by the pay structure in MMA and he was going to change that. That's one of the things he wanted to do with Golden Boy is to pay MMA fighters the way they deserve. And Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell both made a big deal about, uh, you know, percentage of pay-per-view buys. Now, I don't expect that they sold the 29 million pay-per-view buys that Sir Nigel predicted uh, during our power hour. Let's say, though, that they sold 100,000, which we said would be a really good success for them. Not a huge success in terms of like MMA pay-per-views in general, but for a new promoter with this card or a new promoter in MMA with this card, 100,000 would be pretty good. And what if you figure out that like, hey, from that, Tito Ortiz made, you know, an extra 400 grand, made an extra half a million or something because of his per percentage of pay-per-view buys. Do you, do you think there's any kind of argument you can make in the future? Like, hey, the reason you should buy this pay-per-view is because it's actually going to the fighters. Like, you're not just putting money in the pocket of some ultra-rich promoter who is knocking down his neighbor's houses. Like, is that – do people care enough about something like that that you can use that as a genuine motivating – factor i mean it kind of would be to me if i thought that was true and it might be i don't know but like we just talked about golden boy mma appearing outwardly like it was balling on a budget like they weren't going to throw a lot of money at this thing my the cynic in me ben thinks that one of the things that was attractive to golden boy about getting into the mma uh world would be like oh we actually don't even have to pay these guys that much like we can give Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz a quarter million each and they think it's the greatest thing of all time. Whereas, you know, we would have to pay like, uh, like comparable boxers much more yeah. for this. Uh, so I think it would be great if the golden boy model was built on paying the fighters a lot more than other promoters. I just don't know if that's true and would be perhaps the first recorded interest instance in the history of combat sports where someone was like, I want to start a, 
a fight promotion. And the reason I want to do it is because I want to make sure the fighters get paid a ton of money. Like, isn't the exact opposite thing generally true? Well, it seemed like that had to be the case, at least partially for the UFC's new owners, which one of the things that would be a, an attractive prospect about buying the UFC is that you're buying basically an entire sport rather than just a piece of it. And look at how depressed the wages are for this professional sport that's still bringing in a ton of money. And look at the complete total control you have over it. Will there be a second Golden Boy? We don't know. What's your prediction? Nope. I say it goes the way of war MMA. Remember Nick Diaz's uh, promotion? Yeah, I do. I do. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Okay, Ben, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the least back and 10 being the most back, how back is Francis Ngannou right now? 7.5. Pretty high. I mean, that's a C average, but at the same time, if you're Francis Ngannou, you got to be happy with that level of back. Yeah. Well, you know what uh, I think you could really see from Francis Ngannou's reaction after that? And I've heard a lot of fighters talk about this uh, in the past about how, especially if you're in this kind of a situation where you really need to win one, kind of stop the slide, the feeling after winning is not so much elation and joy as it is relief. Mm -hmm. And you could see, I think, the relief in his face, that you got all this pressure on you, you really need to go out there and win, and then to go out there and win by doing the thing that everybody loved you for doing, you feel like, okay, a little bit of the pressure just got released. I, I bought myself some more time and I, I can stop being stressed out about this for at least a little while. Uh, that's kind of the level of back that I think you gain from this because this exact performance over Curtis Blaze, he goes out there, throws that big right hand over uh, Curtis Blaze's left, and it's kind of a glancing blow, but still powerful enough to knock Curtis Blades off his feet. Then he pounces on him and just keeps after him, doesn't give him a chance to recover, uh, gets the stoppage in 45 seconds. It's not like this taught us anything new about Francis Ngannou. Right. We knew he could do this. It's the other th stuff that, you know, the the wrestling defense, the performance in like a long, drawn-out kind of fight where somebody's exploiting his weaknesses. Can he figure it out mid-fight when things aren't going his way? We already knew he could just blitz somebody with power. Right. No, I totally agree with you. On one hand, it's it's the uh, win that he absolutely needed to get, and it's a win that gets him off the schneid after back-to-back -back losses. And it's a win over a guy who comes in with a skill set that uh, Francis Ngannou needed to kind of prove himself again against again because of what we saw from Steve Miocic at UFC 220. So Curtis Blades, who obviously he already defeated back in 2016, but a guy who we thought had developed a lot and had a lot of success in his own right. Curtis Blades comes in with a wrestling-based background, and we needed to see Francis Ngannou beat a dedicated wrestler. And he did that, so okay. That's all good. On the other hand, this seems... I don't know if making like a Ronda Rousey comparison is exactly apt, but this seems like that kind of win to me where it's like, okay, this gets you back, but at the same time didn't answer 
the questions that we may have, the lingering questions that we may have about you. There are still questions about Francis Ngannou's long, long-term fitness as a contender in the heavyweight division. Because we didn't see him do a ton of stuff that would have been nice to see him do. Right. I mean, that's obviously not his fault. He goes out sure. there and does exactly what he's trying to do. Uh, Curtis Blades never even really gets a chance to test his takedown defense. But, right, but Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like Ronda Rousey, like she goes out there and armbars everybody so fast. Like there were still a lot of unknowns about her even uh, and up to like the Holly Holm fight. Right. But I mean, she didn't have the part where you came back and won. Uh, the... Obviously, it's going to be a thing going forward because anybody who fights, fights Francis Ngannou from now on, the two things you know about him are suspect takedown defense. And if you can get him down there the way Stipe did, that there's a blueprint to beat the guy. And two, you absolutely do not want to stand across from him and trade blows. Like That's the, the baseline knowledge that everybody is going to approach Francis Ngannou fight with him. So until he proves... Like against somebody who's really trying to replicate that blueprint and gets a chance to actually try to put it into place that he has found a way to stop it, that's going to be what people focus on to, to beat him. It's not going to be I'm going to stand there, I'm going to I'm going to take his best stuff and come back and knock his head off just because you you know he can do that part of it, right? And he can do it really really well. So yeah, I mean. I'll also be interested to see what the UFC decides to do with him because this was kind of a, a peculiar choice. You're, you're telling us back in as recently as January that Francis Ngannou is the next big thing. He loses to Stipe. You know, no shame in that. Stipe's one of the greatest heavyweights the UFC's ever had. Then he has that terrible fight against Derek Lewis where clearly he's still working out some of his psychological issues that uh, stem from the Stipe fight. And then the UFC decides they just want to fucking bury him. It's the Dana White telling us that his ego's out of control, that the guy lost his damn mind, that he'll never be the same again. And then you book him in a rematch against somebody he already beat, who has the kind of wrestling-based style that seems like it might be his weakness, and you put it in goddamn Beijing in the wee morning hours on a holiday weekend. You're not really going out of your way to try to build him back up, it seems, at that point. But then he comes out with this big win. Does the UFC reverse course and be like, all right, we're, we're back on the Francis Ngannou train? Yeah, it does feel like a fork in the road for the career of Francis Ngannou. Not necessarily like for the forever, but I feel like in the wake of this win, you can go one of two ways, right? You can put him right back in the thick of uh, the Brock Lesnar, Daniel Cormier, Stipe Miocic blender, you know, however that's going to play out. Or you could take a slightly more measured approach and, you know, put him on the other track of like a rematch with Alistair Overeem or like, you know, some other sort of middling contender where he goes out and proves his worth all over again. Uh, the heavyweight thing to do obviously would be to declare him back and reinsert him into the title picture. Despite the fact that, you know, we, well, we think he's going to have to wait because we think that Daniel Cormier is going to fight Brock Lesnar. But at the same time, I guess Daniel Cormier could decide he wants to fight Francis Ngannou next month since he just did that with uh, Derek Lewis. So uh, I don't know, man. He seems exciting enough to me as a talent, despite the fact that, you know, we only got 45 seconds here from him. And so uh, we have good reason to believe that all of the, the problems that plagued him in his two losses probably still exist. He seems exciting enough to me to kind of 
throwback in there. Like, I would feel disappointed if, like, the next thing was a rematch with Alistair Over. Yeah, me too. Like, I don't want to see him in any more rematches. Let's see what he can do going forward. And honestly, at heavyweight, what else you got, man? How much other exciting stuff do you have to offer us at heavyweight? Not a whole lot. Francis Ngannou is one of the few guys where you can actually get me to at least look up what happened in Beijing afterwards. And I don't know that you have, especially in that division, a whole lot of other options than to decide, like, all right, Francis Ngannou is a guy we're going to promote moving forward because he's young for a heavyweight, for one thing. Uh, It seems like you're probably going to lose your heavyweight champion uh, to retirement here fairly soon. Brock Lesnar is going to you know, show up every once in a while, but that's not going to work forever either. So you might as well get over it and see what you can work with with Francis Ngannou. Uh, I don't know. I just – I hate when we even get into situations where we have to wonder, does the UFC – has the UFC just decided that it hates this guy? Yeah, which – and it would be so weird for them to think that about Francis Ngannou. I mean we see lots of people – encounter uh adversity we see lots of people lose multiple fights uh it would be yeah especially since, uh, considering how high they seemed on him earlier in the year it would be weird for them now to kind of like take a hands-off approach i guess the question is regardless of what of which path you want to take with the guy is there a an ideal next opponent who is available to your mind um I don't know. Maybe not at the moment. Uh, but there is some stuff coming up. I yeah. mean, well, you got Junior Dos Santos is about to fight tied to Ivasa right. on December 2nd, so next week, essentially. I would uh, think. You also got on that same card Mark Hunt and uh, Big Pretty Justin Willis. Okay. So if you get a win from Dos, I mean, I could see Engano fighting the winner of. Dos Santos versus Tuivasa, regardless of who yeah. it is. If you get Dos Santos, that's a fight. Francis Ngannou versus Junior Dos Santos is a fight. And, I mean, Mark Hunt, you could, well, you could kind of book Francis Ngannou against Mark Hunt whenever you want. Yeah, you Regardless could. of where they even are in their careers. But that feels more fitting to me than kind of like throwing him back into the, like, the, uh, the boggle bag of, contenders and matching him up against someone with a, a, with a lower Q factor. Yeah. Yeah, no, I wouldn't hate that at all. All right, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, what is your just saying stuff? I'm just saying, Chad, how much of this, this Beijing card did you check out? I saw the two fights that we have discussed on the show. Francis Ngannou. You saw Francis Ngannou and, saw and, and you saw Alistair Overeem. Yeah. Um, if there's something else I should circle back for, let me know. You know, the welterweight fight between Li Jingliang and uh, David Zawada. Right. Not a bad fight. Good finish from Jingliang. Gets a, like a spinning back heel kick to the body uh, that puts David Zawada down. And he pounces on him, punches him, and David Zawada actually taps to the, to the punches. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of remembered, oh, yeah, Li Jingliang. What's going on with him? And he's kind of been on the the fight pass only circuit for a while. He had that one fight on the UFC 221 pay-per-view where he lost the decision to Jake Matthews after he buried his fingers in his eyes. But other than that, it's like whenever the UFC is in the neighborhood, Beijing, Shanghai, somewhere in Singapore, Uh maybe Australia, then that's when they call up Li Jingliang. So I guess I'm just saying as the UFC attempts to break into mainland China, 
why don't you just say the hell with it, admit what you're doing, create a UFC Asian title, and let your boy uh, Li Jingliang fight for it. Okay. That's what you're doing. You're, you're, all the interim titles are basically pro wrestling TV titles. Why don't you just, you know, you want to have a European championship? Why don't you just go ahead, have an have a Asian championship, and Li Jingliang is clearly your guy there. Just saying. Just saying. Sounds good to me. Well, Ben, this week I'm just saying John Jones went on the Ariel Helwani ESPN show today and said that he's he's so scared of USADA of getting another USADA violation that he won't even take a cup of coffee from a stranger. Okay. So two things that I'm just saying. Number one, <laughs> unless I misjudge John Jones's life entirely, when is a when is a stranger ever giving you a cup of coffee? Yeah. Well, wait. Does it mean like? When you go to like the coffee cart and I don't, I'm not friends with the barista. Like, does that count? Just got to watch them like a hawk. Make sure they don't dose that coffee you're about to drink. The second thing I'm just saying is, nah, man, you just need to not take a bunch of weird supplements, right? Like, that's about all this boils down to. That's exactly how scared you need to be. Don't take a bunch of weird supplements. I'm just saying. Just saying. See, this is why... uh I think I'm going to start a sideline business where one of the things that CME can do for people is we will go and get your coffee for you because they'll see us. I think no reason to put steroids in this guy's coffee. Right. It's just a regular Joe. This guy's already yoked. No reason to put steroids <laughs> in his coffee. And then we bring it back to you. Nobody's the wiser. Yeah. The CME like gradually becomes just a clean food and beverage supplier to providers. We're going to transition out of podcasts to more of like delivery boys. Yeah. I mean, okay. Well, we'll still do that pie podcast. Yeah, co-main event podcast. Yeah. Can't wait for that. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, tune in next week. We'll have the big UFC 231 preview show uh, and probably going to be breaking down stuff that happens on that December 2nd card. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. How are you feeling about the book club? Strong. You got your material already? I mean, the thing about the Sisters Brothers is that it's so awesome. I'm a little bit intimidated of like, do we need to do a bunch of prep to make sure we say the most awesome stuff about the awesome book? I have I have a lot of notes on that front. I have a lot of things that I have dissected in the rereading of it to point out exactly what makes it awesome. Yeah. There's oh. even math involved. Whoa. Okay, yeah. I'm excited to hear about that. That's a good teaser. Yeah, when I reread it, a lot of things occurred to me about its awesomeness that might not have struck me the first time. Yeah. So I do recommend it. I do recommend everyone tunes in. Also... Looking forward to finding out if your wife actually shows up. I doubt that she's going to be there, just to be just between you and me. And besides, if she was there, when would we even record it? We'd create a whole scheduling conflict that we would have to work out. 